Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse. I'm Maddie. And I'm Trish. And for the first time in months, we're actually recording in the same room. I know. It's exciting. It is exciting. And it's more quiet than at my house. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to go to England today. But before we do, I know we had some listeners we wanted to thank. Yes, yes. Well, I have two updates and some thank yous. So to our listener, Shannon, she reached out to us through our website and pointed out our Julius Jones episode. I think that was episode 37. And she pointed out that the murder took place in the town of Edmond, Oklahoma, not Edmonds, Oklahoma. I added an S. So again, not the first time I've made a mistake. Certainly not the last. No. <laughs> Will not be the last. So thank you very much, Shannon, for pointing that out. We did change that on our website, but we did want to make sure our listeners knew that it is Edmond, Oklahoma. And just some updates on his case, because they have opened up executions in Oklahoma. They had stopped them for five years and they are opened up. Julius Jones has not been given an execution date, but I think the article I just read this morning, there's been nearly 5 million signatures in a petition for him to be pardoned or granted clemency. And NBA stars Trey Young, Russell Westbrook, and Blake Griffin wrote letters to Governor Stitt and the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board urging them to commute Julius's sentence. So if you haven't listened to that episode, please do, and you can always sign the petition that's out there for him. And then the other update I have is the Sheila Keen Warren case. That was episode 14 the killer clown case. She's in jail right now in Florida, and her trial has been moved yet again. The start date for her trial will be April 9th, 2021. Hopefully by then we have a vaccine. Hopefully, because we'd really like to see her trial at some point. (laughs) I know. She's been in jail now two years. Year, year and a half, two years, just waiting for trial. So we'd also like to thank our listeners in North Carolina. So thank you listeners in Charlotte, Asheville, Hendersonville, Gardner, Kernersville, Burlington, High Point, Winston-Salem, Boone, Marshall, Greensboro, Raleigh, Indian Trail, Wilmington, Mooresville, Mint Hill, Thomasville, Greenville, Durham, Lincolnton, Rocky Mount, Wake Forest, Lillington, Moorhead City, Holly Ridge, Benson, Cornelius, and Peachland. So thank you very much, North Carolina, for listening. So if, like Shannon, you'd like to reach out to us, tell us what we did wrong, or just tell us what we're doing right, uh, you can do so through our website. So it's criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. And there is a comment or a contact page there where you can fill out a form and it'll send us an email. You can also reach us on Facebook. So it's Criminal Discourse Podcast or on Instagram at Criminal Dis Pod. And a YouTube channel. And our YouTube. Every time I get, I do the three and it's, oh, and we have a YouTube channel and our YouTube where we have little snippets and sound bites of our, our episodes. Yes. All right. So had you heard of the case that we're going to do today at all? Not initially. When you sent me the name, I was kind of, why is that name familiar in terms of, you know, I like reading trial transcripts as something fun to do. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> In your free time, just reading trial transcripts. So the name was kind of familiar, but I didn't know why. So I'm interested in this case. So today we're going to talk about Daniel McNaughton. So for those of you who have ever heard that name or researched that name, you'll know there are many different spellings. So in our show notes, you'll see I did have a couple different spellings just to make it a little bit easier for people to be able to find. So the most common that I saw was M apostrophe N-A-G-H-T-E-N, but there's also some that put an M-C or an O-N at the end, just different varieties. But Daniel was born in Scotland, most likely in Glasgow, and most likely in 1813. Now, his true date of birth is unknown. 
His father was Daniel McNaughton Sr., but he was illegitimate, and uh, he was born to Ada, who was a dressmaker in Glasgow, but his father actually had another family and was married. So I saw in Scotland, it was not required to have public records of birth until 1855, so that's why we don't have an actual date or place of birth for him. Now, Daniel was raised by his mother until she passed away in 1821, at which time he went to live with his father and stepmother. Now his father was a businessman in Glasgow and his primary occupation was wood turning but he also was a landlord so he had several properties that he rented out. It doesn't appear that Daniel's stepmother was a huge fan of having him around kind of like a Jon Snow situation but by 10 years old he was beginning to act as an apprentice to his father in the wood turning business so he could learn a trade. I like how you put the Game of Thrones reference in there. (laughs) I had to as soon as I read that I was like oh Jon Snow right there. So after years of study, Daniel was ready to take his place as his father's partner, but his stepmother had other plans because she wanted the business to be passed down to her legitimate sons. So he stayed on, but as an employee, as opposed to really being able to take part in the partnership or take over any of the business. Was he the oldest of all the children? I don't know. I didn't see the the ages of the other sons, but it seemed like he was the most involved in the business, like really wanted to learn the trade make a trade for himself and he thought that I guess through that apprenticeship and through studying all those years that that would be the benefit is actually partnering in the business so besides the heritage of wood turning and following in his father's footsteps he also had another passion the stage so question here though about the wood turning mm-hmm. that's like carpentry it seemed like it was more wood carving Okay. So like furniture making. Yes. Okay. I was thinking carpentry, but yeah, furniture making makes sense. And he also was a would-be thespian. Thespian. An actor. Yes. Thespian. Yeah. Yes. So he loved acting. So in 1832, at age 19, Daniel had enough money saved from his work to pursue his theatrical career. So he used the stage name Mr. Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, and joined a group who performed at the Glasgow Trades Hall. He then joined a group of touring actors and found himself traveling across Western Scotland. Now, the touring did not end very successfully, and he ended up returning to Glasgow three years later when his final finances forced him to return to wood turning just to make any money. He was basically out of money doing this theatrical. He hadn't been successful, came home kind of with his tail between his legs. And isn't that the same way it is now? You hear of all these people that head to Hollywood or they head to New York and they want to be an actor and they're working as waiters or they have other careers that they have to fall back on. Mm -hmm. because they can't make it in the business. Yeah, which I don't know how successful actors were in the 1830s. Yeah. How much, I don't don't know. I have no idea what that type of career even looked like back then. I couldn't name one, so. (laughs) Famous actors from the 1930s. From the 1830s. 1830s, yeah. So his shop was successful, so when he got back to Glasgow, he actually started up his own shop, and even through the late 30s, while much of the country was struggling economically, he was still making money and he was still having customers come to him. So by 1842, he couldn't continue to run his business every day. There were just not enough customers. It was the beginning of the depression period in the country and he just couldn't keep it up. In the fall of 1842, he had booked passage to London on the steamship Fire King and he had reserved a room in a boarding house for 16 weeks. 
during his time in London, he spent a lot of time familiarizing himself with the surrounding area of 10 Downing Street. Now, does that ring a bell for you, the address a little bit? Yes. Yes. So 10 Downing Street, also known as number 10, is the headquarters of the United Kingdom and a residence of the prime minister. So I didn't realize how huge it is. It was actually three houses that they combined into one, and it has over 100 rooms, most of which are offices, conference rooms, reception areas. So Daniel was surveying the area to study the daily habits of the current prime minister, Sir Robert Peel. On Friday, January 20th, 1843, McNaughton followed the man as he emerged from the public offices on Downing Street. He walked to the bank and was returning to Downing Street when McNaughton drew a pistol from his pocket and shot him in the back. He was reaching for a second pistol when a policeman wrestled him to the ground. My assumption would be it's one of those one-shot pistols from back in the day. They didn't have semi-automatics. No, and you had to fill it back up, so he had a whole second pistol ready. But there was a constable, like, a few feet away that tackled him. The man survived for four days but he died on the fifth day from his wounds. Now, what Daniel didn't realize at the time of the shooting was that the man he shot wasn't the prime minister, but his secretary. Whoops. Yeah, it's a crazy case of mistaken identity. So the victim, Edward Drummond, was the private secretary to the prime minister, but resembled Robert Peel in stature and age. The two men were often mistaken for one another by the public. They kept the same schedule, and there was no pictorial press available for people to distinguish one than the other at the time. So, and that's something I never even really thought about when you're going to identify somebody. They don't have any pictures. It's not like you can sit there with your, you know, stalker cam pictures of somebody and look for the right guy. He just matches the age and height. The description. And if he's watching 10 Downing Street and he sees this guy leave every day, maybe at the same time, walking the same route, doing the same errand, he's assuming this is the prime minister. So the question remained, why did Daniel want to kill the prime minister? in the first place. So Daniel was a part of the Chartism movement, which was a working class male suffrage movement for political reform in Britain that existed from 1838 to 1857. It took the name from the People's Charter of 1838 and was a national protest movement. So the People's Charter called for six reforms to make the political system more democratic. So a vote for every man, 21 years of age, of sound mind, and not undergoing punishment for a crime, the secret ballot to protect the elector and the exercise of his vote, no property qualification for members of parliament to allow the constituencies to return to the man of their choice. So that would mean, for example, you can't be voted into parliament unless you own a certain land of a certain value or have certain estate. If I'm wrong, England, let me know, but that was how I took it. So payment for members enabling tradesmen working men or other persons of modest means to leave or interrupt their livelihood to attend to the interests of the nation, equal constituencies securing the same amount of representation for the same number of electors instead of allowing less populous constituencies to have much more weight than larger ones. So similar to the way our Congress works, Mm -hmm. where you have a certain number of representatives based on the population of a state. So annual parliamentary elections, thus presenting the most effective check to bribery and intimidation since no purse could buy a constituency under a system of universal manhood suffrage in every 12 months. Voting every year. Yes. You know, you're reading down these. I'm like, kind of sounds like what our system (laughs) and and our system was already in place in 1838. Yeah. So that's what the People's Charter, that's what his beliefs were, what 
his movement was that he was participating in. Because of this affiliation and belief, he began harboring a delusion that there was a conspiracy against him, and he perceived harassment by the spies sent by, quote, Catholic priests with the help of Jesuits and Tories. Now, Tories is the more conservative political party that was in England at the time, and Robert Peel was the head of that, the prime minister, so it was being represented by the Tory party. So during his interrogation, he said, The Tories in my native city have compelled me to do this. They followed me to France and to Scotland and all over England. In fact, they follow me wherever I go. They have accused me of crimes of which I am not guilty. They do everything in their power to harass and persecute me. In fact, they wish to murder me. Now, there was nothing, no evidence that any of that was true. And based on multiple interviews with physicians... It was all a delusion. He made it up. Yes. He, he was having these delusions that conspiracy theories and these people were trying to murder him and they were out for him and none of it was actually happening. So while this may seem cut and dry, he killed a man he thought was another man, the defense did plead insanity. Well, delusions. So six weeks later, on March 3rd, 1843, the 30-year-old Daniel stood trial for the willful murder of Edward Drummond. The trial took place at the Old Bailey before Chief Justice Tyndall, Justice Williams and Justice Coleridge. So I believe it's similar to what we saw in Iceland where you have the multiple panel. Didn't, was it in Peru as well we saw that with Trigget Smith? Yeah, I remember the case. I don't remember if they had a panel. In any case, this was a panel. So the courthouse was packed with curious observers, including author Charles Dickens. Yes. <laughs> I'm just thinking back to my for? just thinking back to my years of schooling and having to read Dickens for English class. So McNaughton entered a plea of not guilty and the trial began. In trial, it seemed that the prosecution and defense were almost arguing the same point. So the prosecution's case centered on the fact that McNaughton had shot the wrong man, which showed evidence of his diminished mental capacity. So the lead attorney of the prosecution offered his observation on the law of insanity to the court. So the really kind of pivotal difference here in the first time that they're using the insanity plea for this type of case is this is how they're using the insanity plea for state of mind at that moment. So not his general, you know, is he, does he have a history of insanity or mental health problems? Is this something that's reoccurring? It's saying in this moment, did he have mental capacity to know if he was doing right or wrong? And at the time, that's not the way the law was written. It wasn't written based on the moment. It was an overall. So the fact that he was telling people he was being followed, he was being spied on, that he was being persecuted by the Jesuits and Tories didn't matter. The prosecution saying, uh-uh, we're looking at right at that moment when he took the pistol and shot him in the back and then went to reach for the other one. The opposite. My bad. So the prosecution is saying that in general, he had mental capacity and he knows what's right from wrong. If you ask him right now, is this right or wrong? He knows how to make that difference. And where the law stood at the time was only people that could not make that difference all the time could be considered insane. Got it. Whereas for him, it was only in this period of time and in this moment that he didn't realize what was right or wrong because of his delusions. So the defense's case was, well, even though this was only in this moment, it should still be considered insanity. Not really sure how you prove that, though, in court. Well, they used seven different physicians that had interviewed him and that all agreed that at that time he was he could not differentiate right from wrong. 
even the prosecution's mm-hmm. psychiatrist. Yep, or- they all agreed in the same thing that at that moment he could not differentiate right from wrong due to all of the delusions that he was having previously. So McNaughton was acquitted of murder and a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity was delivered. I saw in one place that the judge had actually stopped the trial once the medical evidence was given by those physicians and their testimony was given. And it was at that point that he sent the jury away and that they delivered the verdict in less than two minutes of deliberation. But I only saw that in one place that the judge actually stopped the trial. Everything I saw, though, was that within a few minutes they had voted not guilty for insanity. Well, if you have the prosecution and the defense witnesses saying the same thing and they're arguing almost the same point. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an easy jury trial. But due to the public outcry over the acquittal, the McNaughton rule was established by the House of Lords. So on March 6th, 1843, there was a discussion in the House of Lords. The Lord Chancellor put five questions to a panel of judges. So the five questions were replied to on the 19th of June in 1843, and they were construed as the McNaughton rules. And so here are the main points. Every man is to be presumed sane and to possess a sufficient degree of reason to be responsible for his crimes until the contrary to be proved. An insane person is punishable if he knows at the time of crime, so if he's able to differentiate right or wrong, to establish a defense on insanity, the accused by defective reason or disease of mind is not in a position to know the nature of the consequences. The insane person must be considered in the same situation as to responsibility as if the facts with respect to which the delusion exists were real. So like if I'm having a delusion that I have a pet dog, but I don't actually have a pet dog, that delusion is not going to affect whether or not something is right or wrong. So like that delusion, even though it is a delusion, is not something that excuses me shooting somebody because the delusion itself is not going to affect my actions. It was the jury's role to decide whether the defendant was insane. So even if it's, it still has to be a jury's decision whether or not the person is to be considered insane. So the rules were really just to put order into a case that had already happened. So using precedent, because there was no precedent to this and they had already voted him guilty, they put these rules in place to make it more concrete as to when this rule could be applied and what standards were put in place. So even if you're mentally ill and you're having delusions, mm-hmm. whether you own a dog or you're being followed, even if you have that, but at the moment of the crime, when you have killed someone, whether mm-hmm. you've shot him, strangled him, stabbed him, they're looking, there was this McNaughton rule. You're looking at the moment of the crime. Doesn't matter if you have delusions. Doesn't matter if you feel you're being followed or persecuted. I mean, that that plays into it. Right. Well, and it matters how the delusions affect your behavior. So let's, so for example, with Daniel. So Daniel was having delusions that he was being followed, that someone was trying to kill him, and that the only way to avoid being killed was to kill the prime minister. So that's what his whole delusion. So because of the way that his delusion functioned, he could not determine what was right or wrong because for him it was self-defense. Because by doing this action, I'm not going to be murdered. Whereas if it's something where even in your delusion, what you're doing is wrong and you know that it's wrong, even with what delusions are happening, then that wouldn't be considered an insanity defense. So it really depends almost on what your delusion is or what Mm -hmm. your mental illness is. Right. Okay. McNaughton rule. McNaughton rule. So what happened to Daniel? I mean, he was acquitted and there was an outcry mm-hmm. because of that acquittal. What ended up happening to him? So based on the Criminal Lunatics Act of 1800, he was institutionalized for the rest of his life. So he was first remanded to Beth Bethlehem Royal Hospital 
what we know as Bedlam, on March 13, 1843. In 1864, he was transferred to the New State Criminal Lunatic Asylum at Crawthorne in Berkshire, and he died the next year after 22 years of confinement and struggles with diabetes and heart disease. He was buried on the asylum grounds in an unmarked grave. Hmm. sad. It is. And in everything, there wasn't anything really eventful in his stays in the asylum, and by the end of it, he was pretty much, yeah, I must have really been insane when I did that. Even though he was acquitted, it still looks like he was incarcerated. Right. Yeah, he was still institutionalized based on the criminal lunatics. Well, and we've had cases here in the U.S., not, well, maybe back in the 1800s, but even more recently than that, where people do the insanity defense and they send them to mental health state hospitals for a duration of time till they're clear. Mm -hmm. And then they're relieved. Yeah. You know, they do get out eventually from that. Some go there and then some go to jail. Which we'd have to look at because I'm curious how, what in the legal system, how it's set up. Is it just based on you go until you're cured and when you're cured, you get out? Is it a certain number of like a year minimum? I think it's when you reach an evaluation point where you're clear. But I'm not a lawyer. So I don't know. But if we have any lawyers listening that do know that, I was trying to think of the case and I might be confusing it. I'm either thinking the case of the woman who drowned her children. She had postpartum depression Mm -hmm. and and she ended up drowning her children. That's the one case I'm thinking of. But then I'm thinking of the other case of the woman that shot her husband who was physically abusing her and he was a minister. One of them did claim insanity. And I want to think it's the woman that drowned her children and she went to a mental health institution. And I think she got released from there. But I could be wrong. I'm confusing these things. But if anybody anybody knows what I'm talking about, let me know. <laughs> if anybody knows what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about right now. With that, it is an, it's an interesting concept, though. Especially you, we've seen those cases where people try to claim insanity. I'm not guilty by reason of mental defect. And well, they're not. So right. They're just using it as a defense tool. Well, and again, I could never be on a jury. I'd be awful on a jury. But trying to regularly on a jury, trying to d- see if someone actually committed an act or not, I think would be difficult. Trying to figure out did this person truly know if this was right or wrong at the time that the crime was committed? I couldn't imagine as just an everyday person trying to determine that. Yeah, I'd like to be on this jury that all the witnesses said the same thing. Exactly. Here we go. (laughs) Defense and prosecution are agreeing. So yeah, let's go with whatever they say. Yeah, interesting case that really set precedent for future cases even here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. with that. So this was kind of a true crime light episode. Yes. Right. Well, because we've been a little heavy on the... uh, Serial killers? Yeah. Yeah. And the murdering and the violence. Well, it's coming back. And I've been watching American Horror Story, so I just needed a break from all the blood. Have you watched that? No. I mean, I've seen episodes of it. It's good, but I'm just like, wow, that's real dark. Mm -hmm. So I just stick to my true crime. I have to watch it by myself because my husband can't watch stuff Uh, like that. Yeah. I was watching... What did I bring up the other night? I think Dateline was on and I brought up the episode and he's like seriously do you not get tired of this I'm like well I've never seen this episode he's like how can you watch this this is terrible what people do to one another I'm like I know right I forget what I tried to watch I tried to watch something and it wasn't even like crazy it was like a oh no it was like in the 24 style something like that where it was like action type thing and he was like honey I can't watch this before bed I won't be able to sleep because it's too stressful I'm like it's not anyway well yes We're able to compartmentalize all of that. It's fascinating. That's why we watch it. Well, thank you, Maddie, for this episode. We hope you all enjoyed it. Like Maddie said before, you can check out our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. We also have links there to our Facebook, to our Instagram, and I believe YouTube, maybe even Twitter. 
I was informed we have a Twitter. We do have a Twitter. I don't think I've put anything on Twitter. We should probably up our Twitter game. I don't know if people say Their next that. step. Right. So if you want to reach out to us, please do. And wherever you're listening to us, whatever platform you're listening to us on, you know, please, if you could give us a rating, we would love that and be thankful and appreciative of you doing that. So I, as a criminal discourse life tip, I don't know what I would do that for this. I mean, this was 1800. So it's really, really, I don't know. I guess, which we've talked about before, I think, but if you're having delusions or if you feel like you're having mental health issues, there's so many outlets now. I mean, before it was difficult to even get help. Now you have things like BetterHelp, which they don't advertise with us. But if you, you know, where you can do things on your phone or on your computer and and just try to get help in whatever means necessary. Support group wise, if Mm -hmm. you can't unfortunately afford therapy, yes. You should or even not friends suffer. and family. Yes. Wherever you are. A lot of employers have EAPs, employee assistance programs. We just put that in place in our company. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Where you usually get like two or three free sessions mm-hmm. and then you can decide if you wish to continue or be covered under your insurance. So yeah, don't suffer. Ask for help. There's nothing wrong with doing that. So maybe that's the life tip. There we go. Don't suffer. Reach out. Well, thank you again, as always, everyone. We do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we would only ask that if you see something ever a crime being committed, then say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. And as always, especially in these crazy times, even though we're moving into green phase here in Pennsylvania and things are starting to open up back again, coronavirus still is around. So be careful. Wash your hands. Wear your mask, be safe, but also let's remember to be kind to one another. So until next time, guys, bye. bye.